This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. The militia group that rose to power in the 1990s, known as the Taliban, does not enjoy broad support among the estimated 39 million Afghans. Yet, the Taliban commands an arsenal, a firepower, and a military capability. And that earned them a seat at the negotiation tables in Doha in 2020 with the Trump administration. They made promises to the international community there, many of which have already been broken. Today, after the Biden administration oversaw the withdrawal of U.S. forces, the question remains, how agile and complex is the organizational structure of the Taliban to govern? To get a better understanding of what has changed and what may come, we turn to counterterrorism expert Abdul Basit. He is a research fellow at the Ragnaratham School of International Studies at NTM University in Singapore. His area of focus is radical extremist groups in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Your area of research, I imagine, has had you in high demand in this past week as Afghanistan and the U.S. withdrawal have made headlines and have changed the dynamics in the region. Absolutely. There is high demand and the entire focus of international media is on Afghanistan. Uh, But the story of Afghanistan is as such that, you know, the sooner this attention uh, develops, it dissipates, people won't be talking about it. And I think that has been the story of Afghanistan for the last 20 years. Afghanistan was a forgotten story. And then, you know, right now, I think the same pattern is repeating. News cycle right now is focusing too much on on Afghanistan. But will it be the same after two weeks or a month? I have my doubts. We have announced general amnesty for everyone the security forces from senior to the junior level. And this fear or this hysteria that has taken place is unfounded. The developments were so fast that uh, all people were taken by surprise. And uh, when we entered Kabul, and it was not pre-planned because we announced initially that we do not want to enter Kabul and we want to reach a political solution before entering Kabul making a joint and inclusive government. But what happened was that the security forces left and they abandoned their places and we were forced to ask our forces to enter and take over security. The point of intra-Afghan talks was precisely that we come to to an agreement about what those rights actually entail. Our foremost priority is is, uh, discipline in our own ranks and not... uh, enforcing laws on others, but enforcing it on ourselves first and then uh, giving it as an example for the rest of society to follow suit. So we are the first ones and our members, members, if they are involved in such things, will be the first to be prosecuted. Well, I don't think people believe we are terrorists. I think it's just the war on terror. It was just a a term coined by, by the United States and anyone that did not fall in line with labeled terrorists. 
That was the Taliban spokesperson, Abdul Balki. He's talking on Al Jazeera News with reporter Charlotte Belize. Balki is a member of the Taliban's Cultural Commission and emerged as the group's spokesperson. What stands out to you when you listen to him talking to the international media? What's your takeaway? So they are making the right political noises. They definitely have become very media savvy, very PR savvy, very smart. The spokesperson was speaking in impeccable English. They have pardoned their political opponents. But at the same time, there have been human rights violations as well. There have killings which have taken place. So on a whole, if you look at it, it's not as bad as it was, say, in the 1990s. But it's too early to judge whether they have changed or not. I would say only time will answer this. What is different, I think, a social media They could hide a lot back in the day. Now it is not possible. Those videos will come out. Someone will tweet about it. We will put it on Facebook, other platforms. So evidence will emerge of violations. Afghanistan of 2021 is far, far different from what Afghanistan was in 1996 or 2001 when they left. When you say 2001, the Taliban left, what you're describing is actually the response to U.S. and allied forces attacking Afghanistan after 9-11. It was in October 2001, to be precise, that the military offensive began and the Taliban retreated back to Pakistan, back to the tribal areas. And the objective, the mission for the United States and for allies shifted over the last 20 years from one of a military offensive to one of supporting the building of a state, a civil society. A lot has happened in the last 20 years. We're not going to recount all of it here. But as someone who's been looking at extremist movements, the challenge facing the Taliban today is that it is a very different country than the one they sought to rule over in the early 1990s including the fact that there were two national elections that took place. There has been a greater number of Afghans now are literate from 17 percent. Estimates are there more than 50 percent of Afghans are literate. What are you saying? Afghanistan has experienced democracy. Afghans have been exposed to formal education. They have enjoyed a quality life, relatively better life. These are not the same Afghans which the Taliban ruled ruthlessly in 1996 or from 1996 to 2001. Times have changed. Taliban will have to change. If they don't, they will not be able to rule Afghanistan for a long time. It is very difficult for such radical movements to change. It's an evolutionary process. So will the international community be patient enough to give them the time and space to evolve and work with them? And if international community stays engaged and holds them accountable to what they are saying, I think maybe it is possible. How the Taliban navigate this, given the divisions within their movement, for instance, between the hardliners and those who are more moderate, frankly, the, the movement can fracture. As of now, Uh, While I see the desire is there in them to change, uh, but I'm very, very skeptical. Everyone should be. And the evidence as so far that we have seen is a mixed evidence. So I think only time will tell. You said a lot right there, and I just want to unpack it 
and make sure that I'm getting it correctly. The first thing I heard you say is that the Taliban in Afghanistan itself has different points of view, that there are moderate as well as more extreme factions and leaders within the Afghanistan branch of the Taliban. Who is in control? I think the Rahbari Shura, which is the religious leadership council of the Taliban, they are in charge. So these people who are in the Rahbari Shura or who are in the Qatar office, I think they are more moderate, politically accommodative as compared to those who fought on the ground, the military commission. They feel they have won the war, the victory belongs to them. They should be forming the government and they shouldn't share it with anyone else. Let me just clarify. You're talking about the Rabari Shura. So for listeners, that's the leadership council of men in the Taliban. And it represents leaders from the clerical circles, religious circles, military leaders. And they also come from different ethnic and ideological factions of the Taliban. They're not all in agreement. I understand that the Rabari Shura is the group that led and really directed negotiations with the Trump administration that took place in Qatar in 2020 that laid the foundation for this withdrawal. Now, since the U.S. withdrawal has been completed, what is the challenge that you see facing this council, the Rabari Shura, and the military leaders and the fighters that are on the ground? What are the biggest obstacles that they face? The political office is then negotiating not only with other ethnic and political factions, but these uh, consensus making is an ongoing process within the movement as well. So all the decisions are taken with consensus. And once a consensus within the movement has been achieved, then by the organizational discipline, all fighters, commanders, factions are bound to follow it. So I think they will do the consensus uh, making within their organization and outside of their organization, which will be the national consensus. So I think while these divisions are there, this is nothing new. And uh, consensus making for the Taliban, the process is as old as the movement is. That point that the process is as old as the movement, the movement is relatively young, though. Do you see that as having implications for the way in which the Taliban negotiates with the international community? So the movement started in 1994, got the government in Afghanistan in 1996. It was toppled in 2001 and they regained it in 2021. So it's like a 26, 27-year-old movement, relatively young, as you said. Uh, This is the second generation of the Taliban who fought uh, the known as Taliban 2.0 or Neo-Taliban. The paradox for the Taliban is they are telling the international community that they are politically pragmatic despite being a radical Islamist movement. Now, that's a paradox. They can't be both at the same time. Now, they say that they are a radical Islamist movement because they have to satisfy their cadres. But they say they are a politically pragmatist because they have to you know, engage with the international community. Now, these two polar opposite positions, where do they meet? And I think that's the test. There are inherent risks that the Taliban movement might crack up. Some factions might split off. If they crack up, then the fighting will go on. 
Okay, so I want to now jump into two big questions that I think are on the minds of a lot of listeners and and, and on my mind, which is the role of women and girls, not just education, but the ability to have agency. And second, the relationship between religious minorities and the diversity within the Muslim community in Afghanistan. How is the Taliban treating, for example, the Shia community and non-Muslim communities that are now admittedly very small in Afghanistan, but they are there. There has also in the last 20 years been a rise in the number of young Afghans who identify more as cultural and secular. The litmus test of this moderation, the litmus test for many Western observers, is the treatment of the most marginalized and the vulnerable. So there, again, if you look at the available evidence since they took power, the evidence is mixed. They provided protection to the Hazara Shia community, uh, mourning uh, the the martyrdom of Hussein, the grandson of Prophet Muhammad, who, who was martyred in the, the Battle of Karbala in 680 Amitubini. You're talking about how the Afghan Taliban took control and it coincided with the second holiest month in the Muslim Islamic calendar. That's the month of Muharram. And it is in that month on the 10th day that the holiday of Ashura, a day of commemoration of this battle that you are just describing, takes place. Now, traditionally, the Taliban is a Sunni based movement. There have been tensions historically between the Taliban and the Hazara Shia community in Afghanistan. What did you see happen during Ashura? So during Ashura, they were going around and ensuring the the Hazara Shia community that they can commemorate Ashura comfortably. And uh, actually, the Taliban will provide them protection. So some Taliban leader went and sat in their majalis. Majalis are study circles where Shia Muslim community gathers. And they, as a mark of respect, they remember uh, the martyrdom of Hussein and uh, they mourn it as a mark of respect. Now, they went there and sat in that. And that's unprecedented. At the same time, if I get critical, I'll say that it was only for public consumption because those pictures were on social media. So they were doing this PR exercise for international communities' consumption. So I'll take it at the face value because subsequently there have been fightings where they have killed around 12 to 14, if I'm correct, uh, uh, Hazara Shia community members. If you look at what they were doing during the Ashura and then what they did subsequently, uh, you you get that contradictory evidence. Uh, same goes for, for women. They held a meeting with women working in different sectors and told them they can go back to their works in limited circle uh, sectors. They can go back to their work. And not only that, they will be allowed to work, but they will be given protection as well, etc. Uh, but then, you know, subsequently, we also heard the news that Uh, The same women, when they reported back to their work, they were told that, you know, they cannot uh, work here. So at one side, you have the social media videos assuring the women that they can work. But then you have these practical instances where uh, these women who were given the sureties, you know, then made videos and said that despite the sureties, when we reported back to work the next day or the day after, we weren't allowed to, you know, uh, go into our offices. 
So there is a lot of confusion here. I, I, I'll say the most important indicator will be what policies they announce and then practical steps of, of, of those policies, implementation of those policies. As you're describing this period that we're in, the period of uncertainty, I'm also hearing you talk about the power of accountability in the form of social media, in the form of non-traditional channels of communication that either verify or challenge and undermine the assertions that the Taliban leadership is making to its political partners. Do you have any concerns about the Taliban in Afghanistan restricting or cutting off communication access to the population there? Do you see that as a threat? So if the Taliban decide to shut social media or the internet in Afghanistan, that will only be taken as a step to hide their human rights violation or their draconian policies. So social media is a double-edged sword. For the Taliban, at one side, it allows them to project their apparently uh, moderate image to the world. At the same time, it is also a channel where ordinary common Afghans are recording their experiences of a life under the Taliban, uh, where they have exposed uh, the gap between what they say and what they do. So if the Taliban really decide to go down that path, it will be a huge setback for them as well. In my opinion, they will not do that. Only the public opinion, uh, independent public opinion will be the best barometer to judge the Taliban, whether people are happy with them or not. I'm talking with Abdul Basit, a research fellow at the Rajaratnam School of International Studies at NTM University in Singapore. Basit is a counterterrorism expert who monitors radicalization and militancy groups like the Taliban, as well as their influence in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Coming up, we talk about terror networks that are re-emerging and the dynamics between Taliban, ISIS-K, and Al-Qaeda. He explains why lumping religious political extremists together is a mistake. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Fifteen days before the U.S. forces withdrew from Afghanistan, the country's democratically elected president, Ashraf Ghani, fled the country. He cited a desire to avoid bloodshed and armed conflict. And not long after he left, the Afghan national forces ceded control to the Taliban. The Taliban is not the only militant organization, though, seeking to exert influence in the country. A recent attack by ISIS-K near the Kabul airport led many to ask about the factions vying for power in the country, which is where we pick up my conversation with Abdul Basit. He's the head of the South Asia desk at the International Center for Political Violence and Terrorism Research. Let's get back to my conversation. 
Your area of expertise is terrorism research. What is ISIS-K? What is the relationship of al-Qaeda to the Taliban? And what is the state of al-Qaeda today? So al-Qaeda presently is, uh, as an organization in Afghanistan, is, is very, very weak. It is crippled. It has leadership crisis. Its members have been killed or arrested. Uh, uh, and Al-Qaeda suffered a huge setback in 2014 when its most potent arm in Iraq split off and formed what we know as the Islamic State or Daesh. There was a huge setback. So the global jihadist movement had its own civil war. It is still ongoing. Uh, Osama bin Laden's killing in 2011 was a huge setback. Amman Zawahiri is not as charismatic as bin Laden was. For these terrorist groups, uh, their currency is violence. If you are unable to you know, carry out attacks, you are written off and your brand is dying. But this Taliban victory is a victory, symbolic victory for Al-Qaeda as well. It is a victory uh, for their brand of so-called global jihadism. Uh, two prison breaks, one in Bagram and one in Pulicharhi, resulted in large numbers of high-profile Al-Qaeda leaders uh, coming out. So the release of those prisoners and this victory of the Taliban, which is a symbolic victory for Al-Qaeda, will rejuvenate Al-Qaeda's brand. U.S. intelligence estimates suggested that if the Taliban returned to power, it could take Al-Qaeda anywhere between 18 months to two years to revive. How the Taliban decouple uh, from Al-Qaeda? How do they manage them? I think will be a big question mark. ISK is the official branch or affiliate of the Islamic State in Afghanistan. Uh, The group has been there since uh, January 2015. In the last six years, it has gone through several ups and downs, leadership, uh, decapitation, uh, territorial losses, organizational setbacks. The dangerous thing about this group is that despite its small footprint, and when I say small, I mean maximum number here is 4,000. And if you look at the Afghan Taliban, their number is a minimum 68,000 to 80,000. They have a small but a very dangerous footprint. Every time they do an attack, it's a high-profile attack. Last year, they carried out attacks. For instance, they opened a jail in Nangarhar where they freed their prisoners. Uh, They did an attack on a maternity hospital in Kabul. They targeted a Sikh Gurdwara or a Sikh temple in Kabul. And recently they did the Kabul uh, airport attack. I think this group poses a danger to the Taliban, poses a danger to Al-Qaeda as well. And those edgy elements, the peripheral hardline elements of the Taliban movement, who may not take Taliban's moderate political voices too kindly, and it, it, it may not go down well with them. I think then ISK is positioning itself to attract those elements to its side, portraying itself as the so-called true jihadi organization. They are already criticizing the Taliban for entering into a deal with with the U.S. They are criticizing the Taliban for being moderate, uh, being soft on the Shia community and uh, facilitating the U.S. withdrawal. You're saying that while Al-Qaeda and ISIS-K 
are part of this global network of extremist groups and that they have had in the past historical relationships, sometimes normalized with the Taliban, sometimes coordinating, that right now, as you and I are talking, when the Taliban uh, in Afghanistan made a decision to coordinate and work with the U.S. government to facilitate the final evacuation and the final lifts out of Kabul, that that act of coordination with the United States puts them on the outside of uh, being seen as allies of ISIS-K, that there is a potential tension here. I mean, you you described earlier that the Taliban did for whether it was public media consumption or a reflection of a true change. They supported the observances in the Hazara Shia community of Ashura. Yeah. If they were doing that for whatever purposes, whatever intention, the reaction by ISIS-K, if I'm hearing you correctly— is one that puts them on opposite ends of the agenda. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're describing two movements that are so small, yet have contained and been able to seize control of governance, of being able to regulate freedom of movement. As you look ahead, do you see a civil war scenario emerging, or has has it already emerged? So... It totally depends on how things pan out from here. The paradox that I talked about, that their pitch to the world is we are are politically pragmatic now, but they are telling at the same time we are the radical Islamists. These two can't go hand in hand. Now, if they try to reconcile this, I do not rule out chances of some faction splitting off and they might join ISK. Now, if they go and join ISK, and it's a big if with a capital I and a capital F, then, you know, that possibility of a civil war can't be ruled out. But as of now, I would say Taliban are in control of Afghanistan. They are the most powerful organized group, and they have backing of these regional, powerful regional countries like Pakistan, China, Russia, Iran, and Central Asian republics. So it will be difficult for any other group inside Afghanistan to challenge Taliban's monopoly as of now. Uh, But it is difficult to rule out because Afghanistan can throw up surprises and the best of the pundits in the business can be proven wrong. And we saw that happening when Taliban took over in less than 10 days or 10 days. Mm -hmm. Everyone was saying, while it could be months or at least a year before they could reach Kabul, they reach Kabul in 10 days. Mm-hmm. I want to turn to women's rights in Islam for a moment. Islam's legal doctrines are not often reflected in state practices. The word Sharia, which has been confused to mean a static one document, in fact, is anything but. Sharia is a process that produces many, many interpretations. That being said, Muslim historians and scholars have pointed out that women's rights to education, to have agency over decisions like marriage and divorce, the right to own a business, engage in financial transactions, and inherit property, that these were rights exercised by women in the 7th century and also enshrined in the Afghanistan constitution that was adopted in 2004. Now, that constitution that established the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan It guaranteed the rights of women and religious minorities and human rights of all Afghan citizens. It also created quotas reserving seats in the governing councils for women, 
The Constitution, I should say, was adopted and supported across the country by religious clerics. And now the Taliban says it's going to replace it with something else. Who is insisting that women's rights and the rights of girls to be educated and to engage fully in civic life? Who's going to uphold those rights and ensure that women and girls are not the biggest losers? I think no country is saying that Taliban should implement their policies that were in the place from 1996 to 2001. No country is saying that. I mean, for instance, Pakistan was one of the three countries to recognize them. Pakistan's army chief the other day in an address urged the Taliban to fulfill their commitments that they have made to the international community, not only in the Doha agreement, but also ensuring rights of minorities, women, and other ethnic political groups. So if Pakistan is saying that, I can't imagine any other country saying, no, keep doing what you were doing. It's all right. I think no one country is saying that. Their commitments to the international community is the benchmark against which the Taliban government will be judged and decisions will be made whether to recognize them or or sanction them. I think for, for me, I think there is clarity on this. Any platform, whether you look at the extended Troika, you look at the UN General Assembly meeting recently, Transparency International, Human Rights Watch, EU, any other platform, I think the international community from multilateral forums, bilateral forums, within their own capacity have been urging them to respect what they have promised to the international community. Which other countries aside from Pakistan do you hear pushing to ensure that they uphold their side of the bargain? U.S., U.K., Qatar, I think China, Russia, definitely the extended Troika, which includes Russia, China. They said the same. All these uh, points which you have asked are mentioned in those communiques that they should respect the rights of women, rights of minority, other groups right to education, right to work, right to public life, uh, to participate in politics as well. So these points are there. With the 20th anniversary of 9-11 coming, there are growing concerns about the potential for events or and attacks. Do you see that? Or are you hearing that from your colleagues in the counterterrorism community? The risk is there. Definitely the risk is there. How the Taliban address these concerns is something uh, that we need to watch and observe. The U.S. has carried out two drone attacks under the Taliban rule. And well, the Taliban were protesting against violation of their sovereignty. At the same time, they were asking the U.S. well, they should have been told and they would have taken again action against ISK. So I think in a way, the template has already emerged of what over the horizon counterterrorism would mean. Drone strikes, basically, based on intelligence. And people are asking, you know, these drones, where were they flying from? Most likely some Central Asian Republic. So I think the template is there, and we can already see a working relationship between Taliban uh, and, and the U.S., as bizarre as it sounds, on counterterrorism particularly against ISK. But it will get tricky when it comes to the question of Al-Qaeda. If and when the U.S. hits 
and al qaeda leader in afghanistan under the taliban rule we'll have to wait and see what kind of reactions the taliban will give them because isk is the sworn enemy of the taliban so if a us drone strikes are killing isk leaders actually doing a favor to the taliban as well but once these targets expand to al qaeda then we'll see what kind of reactions uh, they'll give Just to be clear, Al-Qaeda is different from ISIS, which is different from the Taliban. ISIS-K is the sworn enemy of the Taliban in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda is known to have had relationships with the Taliban, and it's unclear how they are working together and whether or not Al-Qaeda Afghanistan will reemerge. Is that right? You are right. So their relationship with Al-Qaeda is one thing. Their enmity with ISIS-K is another the chances of these two coming together are very very slim and this equation of over the horizon counter terrorism will remain conflict prone but i think uh, this is something that international community and regional countries will have to persist you know no one can afford afghanistan to slip back to the pre 911 days no one can afford that i want to just ask you a question about the majority of afghans who are not adherence to what we'll describe as a global jihadi outlook. Can you describe the attitudes of Afghan Muslims to these religious political movements that seek to control the country? Afghanistan in the last 20 years has changed. There is very little support even for the Taliban. People are afraid of the Taliban even. The majority of Afghans are peaceful people. They want peace. They want to live in peace. Yes, Afghanistan is a traditionally Muslim society. doesn't really mean anyone in them is radical they are very pro democracy actually and they would like to live in peace the country has been at war or in a conflict for the last 40 years afghans are exhausted afghans are tired what they need is peace what they need is healing the last thing they can afford is these transnational jihadists lurking around in their spaces and afghans are judged for unwanted elements in their country so let's not judge afghans for the terrorists which are moving around in their country end of the day i wish and pray that peace returns to afghanistan i wish and pray that afghans who have been suffering for the last 20 years their sufferings come to an end my sympathies and my heart goes out to all those who who had to leave their homes and a big token of appreciation for all those in the US in the west other countries were opening their doors for these homeless people extending them a warm welcome Abdul Basit is a research fellow and the head of the South Asia desk at the International Center for Political Violence and Terrorism Research at the S Rajaratnam School of International Studies at NTM University in Singapore. He specializes in South Asian security issues, focusing primarily on terrorism and religious extremism in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region. He is also the associate editor of the center's quarterly journal, Counterterrorist Trends and Analyses. In the coming weeks, as we approach the 20th anniversary of 9/11, we are going to be talking to and hearing from different voices. And I want to invite you to join that conversation. 
Share your reflections and thoughts as we approach this milestone anniversary. Send a voice memo or an email to amber at interfaithradio.org. That's A-M-B-E-R at interfaithradio.org. That's all for this week's episode. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, MC Yogi for our theme music. This week's producers are Kimberly Winston and Kevin McCarthy. If you missed any portion, I invite you to head over to interfaithradio.org where you can subscribe to our newsletter, stream the podcast, and learn more about us. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe. I hope you are well, and I hope to see you next week.